0: I'd just like to welcome everyone joining us for our live stream. It's only one part of our service here. You can be part of the whole thing via Zoom by sending us an email. But the best thing is to come and join us in person. Uh, We're going to look at two places in the Bible today. First of all, to Matthew chapter 16, and then to Ephesians chapter 1. Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would speak it into our hearts and minds today, that we might embrace it fully, that you might give us revelation about who we are together in Christ Jesus and all your purposes for us. And I pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would rest on me so I can proclaim your word boldly and faithfully this day. We pray all this to the glory and praise and in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Matthew 16, we'll start with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the son of, that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then over to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, 15 to 23. Paul writes, he says, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, it's a big year this year here in the UK, the United States, it's an election year. And uh, I know you all looking forward to this Many of you said after the last one, I can't wait till the US has another election. I, I love it so much. You know, No, nobody has said that to me. And if you follow any of the, the issues around US elections, uh, especially the last one, you'll know that a really big issue right now is the whole issue of postal voting or what we used to call absentee voting. To be able to get your ballot in the post so that you could fill it out at home and send it in. And there's a lot of controversy about postal voting in the US, not not so much here, but it's really, really big in the US. And for some of us who've been around for a little while, uh, we we remember that, well. I mean, we were taught that it's important for us to exercise our civic duty. And that means on polling day, getting out of your house, going and queuing up at the polling station in order to exercise your right to vote. And many people are, feel like the idea that everybody can just simply vote by post and they're so easy to forge, they're so easy to manipulate, but that that idea that you don't have to come out and come to the polling station uh, is actually undermining democracy and not promoting good healthy responsibility that people need to have in a democracy uh, there's a similar issue that we have that you probably have followed the whole work from home phenomenon that's come out of the uh, come out of uh, the, the pandemic and all that and for a while people thought well if people can work from home they'll be more productive But now we're discovering, that uh, unless you're kind of your own business owner working from home, that working from home actually makes you less productive overall. And in in one writer I I read in the last couple of weeks, he said that work from home is going to become redundancy from home. Because there's a lot of employers that say, okay, you can work from home, but when we make redundancies, we're gonna make you redundant first. Uh, And it's, it's a really big issue. Doing something from the comfort of your own home doesn't necessarily make you more productive. Unless you're having babies, that normally works better from the comfort of your own home. And so it's a real mindset that started to settle in to a lot of people in our society that if I'm gonna participate, if I'm gonna do work, if I'm going to uh, participate in the democracy, then you need to make it as easy as possible, as simple as possible for me to do this. And unfortunately, over the years, this has also influenced Christians regarding church. So we've seen over the years, this shift, the mindset that, well, it doesn't really matter if I go to church or not. You know? it. uh, it's, you know, as a church, we should make things as easy as possible for people. Um, don't make it too challenging. Make it easy for them to become members and, and to be part of the church. Or just let people watch church at home, with apologies to those of you joining via Zoom, because it's not quite the same. You know, I'm thankful for Zoom as long as people on Zoom are participating and not just watching like you do a TV show. And it's easy to do either one. So this whole issue has invaded the mindset of Christians and we've allowed it to do so because I think in many respects, the mindsets that have emerged, and they've been emerging for a lot of years now. This is not just overnight, it's not since the pandemic. I've seen this since the 1990s at least these mindsets that that have been emerging, I believe show that most Christians, including church leaders, don't understand who the church really is. Most Christians don't understand who the church really is. And frankly, we haven't needed to understand who the church really is in the past. You know, think about it. We've we've talked a bit the last year or so about Israel and Babylon. Israel meaning a society that favors Christianity, that supports the Christian faith, where people are expected to have Christian values, uh, even if they're not Christians and live by those values. And, And we've called that kind of society Israel. And we've seen a society that has emerged now that we've called Babylon, which is a society that's hostile toward Christian values and things like that. Well, when we were living in Israel, when we were living in a society that favored our Christian values, the whole land seemed to support Christianity. So with the whole culture supporting Christianity, the uniqueness of the church kind of fades into the background. And the church itself kind of blends in with the overtly Christian fabric of society. So, there's an expectation, okay, if you're going to be a part of this country, you're going to be part of a church. And it kind of blends together. And in that, the church, the danger is that the church just becomes just another social justice organization or kind of a, another social organization. However, now that we're living in Babylon, the tide has gone out, if you will, and it exposes churches which are genuine churches and frankly, those churches, which are merely social gatherings, welfare agencies, or clubs. In Babylon, the church has become tamed and largely irrelevant for most people. You know, it's one Sunday morning option amongst many, and frankly, it's certainly not the most attractive option, especially when you look at the Eggs Benedict that's available in some of those restaurants you can go to on a Sunday morning. You know, there's a lot of other things that we might want to do with our valuable time. And consequently, we've lost our influence in society. And no one understands really what the church is, who we really are. And so part of the issue Uh, in this sermon series is help, help us recapture what the Bible is saying about the church because we desperately need to know who we are together in Christ if we're gonna make any difference whatsoever in this world around us today. If we're going to thrive in Babylon, and by the way, I believe that that's God's calling for us, I believe that's our destiny, that's God's purpose for us, He wants us to thrive. He wants us to flourish as the body of Christ. He wants more people to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's gonna use us to do that. But if that's gonna happen, we must perceive and believe who the church is. And the best place to start is the very definition of the word church, which is the Greek word ekklesia. So you can try. I don't normally do this, but you can repeat after me. Ekklesia. ecclesia. Now you're all Greek speakers. So you, you've got it. Uh, it's spelled in a number of different ways. When you transliterate it into English, I like the double K. Some people like the double C. Uh, if you've ever heard the word ecclesiastical, that word comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which simply ecclesiastical seems simply means that which is engaged, uh, involves the church. Well, when we're looking at this word "ecclesia," we need to understand that God chose the word "ecclesia" intentionally. It was no accidental choice. It wasn't Luke or, or Matthew writing and saying, okay, oh, how do I, what, what word can I use? in the Greek, uh, I'm just gonna, I'll just pick out any word for assembly and bring it together. It wasn't that kind of thing at all. God had a lot of words to choose from that we could translate into what we call church today, but God chose the word ecclesia on purpose. And the basic definition of the word uh, literally means the totality of those who are called out. And I'll say more about that in a moment, but there are a lot of errors that you'll see, and even errors among uh, scholars, Greek scholars, get this wrong. There's a few that get it right, there's a few that understand it, and the reason why many times we get it wrong is because for the last 1,500 years or so, we've kind of assumed the definition, and that's one of the biggest errors that people make. We just assume that we know what it is, We just assume it, and so many times, what the scholars will do, instead of dealing with the word in the Greek and in the context, they just bring their assumption and apply their assumption back on the word. Now, another big mistake that people make, and I hear this a lot. Boy, if I had a pound for every time I heard this uh, by a pastor or a leader, uh, I could at least take Karen out for a nice meal. Uh, And that is ecclesia. It, you break it down ek means out klesia means called so this is the called out ones and that's cute but that really doesn't work in greek you can't really do that any more than you can do that in english now that's so that's a big mistake now some people another error is that they just assume assume that church means a gathering It's just a simple gathering of people. But there were a lot of Greek words that God could have chosen to mean gathering. So it's not quite there. Another big problem is our cultural understandings of church. I was reading an article just this week by a seminary professor in the United States. And and so this is a, a class of people who are studying theology. And he asked this question, he said, when you, if you go into an average church next Sunday, what would you expect? And uh, the first student raised his hand, said, "Lighting." And he thought, "Lighting? What, what? What do you mean about lighting? You know, he expected them to say, well, 'Well, I'm going to see.'" Uh, people worshiping God. I'll see people singing. I'll I'll hear the word, uh, maybe encounter someone celebrating the Lord's Supper. But what he meant was stage lighting, like you see in a lot of the really big churches that are around. We don't really have that here, thank God. Uh, But it's amazing how that is a totally culturally conditioned understanding of church. For most of the last 2,000 years, you would never have expected stage lighting in a church. Just wouldn't have happened. But the problem is that ultimately distorts your understanding of church. And of course, there are a lot of people that look at church as just another voluntary organization. But when God inspired the word ecclesia, the word had a well-known meaning in the Greek-speaking word. And whoever would have heard this, whoever would have heard the word, would have understood at least basically the meaning, if not the implication. And so for people in the Greek-speaking world, the word ekklesia called to mind a city. They would have thought immediately, this has something to do with the city. Before the rise of nation states, you know, like the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, Russia, and on and on, those are nation states. Before the rise of nation states and throughout almost all of Bible history, cities were the constituent government of the world. So when you talked about Israel, you talk about Jerusalem, and you could use those two words interchangeably. Or you talk about The big empire that controlled uh, Palestine at the time of Jesus, it's called the Roman Empire. But Rome wasn't a country, Rome was a city. And so cities were the constituent government of the world really up until, largely up until the Middle Ages when things began to change. So you have a lot of examples here, you have Athens, You have Sparta, uh, you have Thebes, all of those are Greek uh, speaking cities. Uh, You had Rome, you'd have Babylon, you had Jerusalem that I mentioned. And all of these cities would normally represent a people with a common identity. So even though the Spartans and and the, the Thebians would both speak Greek, they had a unique identity as a people based on their city based on their city allegiance. And cities influenced their surrounding areas. The cities would provide peace and a good living there. Uh, They helped resource the people in the area. Uh, Sometimes cities engaged in wars to expand their influence. You had Athens and Sparta. They warred from 431 to 405 BC. And then you had Sparta and Thebes. They warred from 378 to 362. And it was all about who is going to influence the larger area of Greece. And so cities were doing that. And empires grew from cities. Babylon, it was an empire as well as a city. Rome was an empire as well as a city. And cities back in those days, they had both walls and gates. It's important to remember that. They had gates and the gates of the city were very important places because the gates of the city, obviously they controlled who who had access to the city, who would come in the city, but also the elders would sit at the city gates. And you see this even in the Bible, the elders would sit at the city gates And that's where a lot of business was conducted and that's where they would give judgment in certain cases. They'd give their ruling uh, uh, in certain cases in the city and they would exercise their leadership in the place of the city gates. Now Greek cities all had a fairly standard form of government. Every Greek city would have one or more city officials And the role of the city official was to be the expert. The city official was the expert on the constitution and would advise the council uh, and uh, the rest of the citizens about the right way to go in accordance with the constitution and the best things to do. And then every city would have a council of elders, a town council or city council and the city council, would meet and they would conduct business and they would make rulings and deliberations. Uh, and again, sit in the city gates and determine who would do that. And then every city, every Greek city, would have an ecclesia. See, the connection. They'd have an ecclesia, which is, was an assembly of their citizens. And this ecclesia functioned under the leadership of the city official and the leadership of the city council or the city elders. And the ecclesia of each city consisted of citizens of that city who were called out of their homes and into the market hall, into the market square or some similar area in the city. And this is how it would work. The, the, the city official or the elders, They would call for a gathering, they'd send out a herald, the herald would go throughout the city, say, there's an assembly coming up, everybody assemble, and then all the citizens would come out of their homes and they would assemble in a public place so that they could exercise their corporate responsibilities according to the city's constitution and for the city's corporate benefit. And this would happen in every city. And your personal benefit in the city as a citizen was completely wrapped up in the well-being of the city. And so this makes sense of what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 7, one we like, we love uh, to quote this, seek the welfare of the city because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That would have been the attitude of every citizen of the city. Now, not everybody that lived in the city was a citizen. You had the citizens who had the right of voting. You had their families and their children who could become citizens. And you had guests and and sojourners that lived in the city. But the important thing is, when they were summoned to be as the ecclesia, they had to come out of their homes and gather together in the designated meeting place in order to exercise their corporate authority. If you didn't come out of your home and gather in the central place, you had no authority. You couldn't exercise a vote or things like that. You had to be together with the other citizens in that context. And so, How do you know, how do we know then that this is what God had in his mind when he said, I'm going to call this gathering of Christians an ecclesia. You know it by the words of Jesus. It's the first time that Jesus really uses the word. There in Matthew, Jesus said, On this rock I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is saying that he is building an ecclesia that will be on the rock of Jesus Christ the declaration that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God, that's the rock on which his city will be built. Jesus Christ will be the chief cornerstone and the stronghold of hell, the gates of the stronghold of hell, because the gates of a stronghold represented the entire stronghold, the gates of hell will not prevail against the ecclesia of God. That's what Jesus is saying there. The ecclesia of Jesus is against the gates of hell, the stronghold of Satan, because Satan doesn't have ecclesias. I'll mention here in just a moment. So Jesus is talking about a war between cities, the ecclesia of God and the stronghold of Satan. Uh, in a sense, you could look at the whole Bible as, kind of as a, a conflict between cities, as a conflict between Babylon and Jerusalem. And we already know that Jerusalem's going to win. Jerusalem wins. So this leads us to understanding church, ecclesia, is the constituent administration of the kingdom of God in the world. Constituent is like the components, the little bits of God's administration. So God's global kingdom he is administering the advancement and the sustenance and the foundations, all of that of his kingdom via his ecclesia. That's what Jesus says. The ecclesia is the constituent administration of the kingdom of God. Now, how do you know that? Because he says to Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. But the word you there is plural. He's not talking about giving Peter individually the keys of the kingdom. He's saying, I'm going to give you the ecclesia, the keys of the kingdom, so whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The binding and loosing, the authority that we have to administer the kingdom of God is a corporate authority that we share as the ecclesia of God. And that is our reality. So in the ecclesia, Jesus is the king. There's a king, that's Jesus, but he exercises his kingship alongside his bride. That's the ecclesia, and it consists of the various ecclesias in locations all around the world. We're all part of that bride, and Jesus is working alongside his bride to exercise his authority and advance his kingdom. In a sense, the ecclesia is the local administration of the kingdom of God. Just as Rome had many different cities and each of those cities had a certain degree of importance in the empire of Rome and they had to administer the empire according to Rome and that's what enabled Rome to expand and sustain its expansion. In the same way, God is expanding his kingdom by establishing ecclesias all around the world. And it's the local ecclesia that administers the kingdom of God on behalf of the king. In a sense, we're like cities of God who embody God's loving rulership in various places around the world. So this kingdom expands by establishing new ecclesia in wilderness places around the world. Just like the Roman Empire, when it would expand, like into the uh, England, what did they do? They founded London, where we live right now. And that was London that helped them establish their kingdom here in the United Kingdom, and other cities as well. And that's the way that God is working to expand his kingdom. And he's expanding his kingdom into these wilderness places so that the gates of hell will not prevail against them. And as we expand into these wilderness places, the gates of hell that try to stop us shall not prevail against us. That's the promise of Jesus. So the citizens of the ecclesia, that's us, gather to exercise our corporate authority over our city and over the region around us And then we organize forays into the surrounding countryside or even further beyond to extend the city's, the ecclesias influence all around. And the idea about London, if we're going to see London one for the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it's going to take are more and more ecclesias established all around London so that they all ultimately become joined together so, that the kingdom of God is fully established and fully planted here. So, citizens of God's kingdom were called out of our homes into the central gathering place, it's like often a church building. But there's no absentee system in the ecclesia. We must come together. And this is where I'm thankful for Zoom. Because if you're joining us via Zoom and you're participating, you are linking your home with what's happening here. And we're seeing the ecclesia expand into your home as long as you're engaging with worship and not just watching worship. And Zoom has given us the ability to do that as never before. And I think in, uh, that in similar tools can really be a powerful thing to help us expand the kingdom of God. But we have to understand, a citizen's authority, your authority in the ecclesia, is a corporate authority. It's not individualistic. Our authority exists as we come together. Now, we do have some authority as individuals, obviously, when the Lord sends us out. But the real authority we have is a corporate authority, And elders are kind of like the city council who exercise government over the city according to the constitution, which is the Bible for us. And the minister is kind of like the city administrator, the city official. It's an expert who's called upon to guide the citizens in the correct ways of operating and the right interpretation of the constitution. You see the parallels. See how it starts to fit together. These ecclesia around the world, the ecclesia uh, as cities, if you will, are independent. In other words, we're not necessarily dependent. uh, the, The government of one ecclesia doesn't tell us what to do. We're accountable to the king, who is Jesus, but at the same time, we're interconnected. So the ecclesia, we're all united in Christ, we're all under Christ, even though we have some independence as ecclesia around the world. In other words, the elders of the ecclesia are the government of the ecclesia, with the permission of the ecclesia itself. You see how that works. And uh, what you know, you may have heard of apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, all of those are translocal ministers that are given by Jesus to build up, to mature, to connect the ecclesia, and to help establish more ecclesia. And so in this, we have the revelation of who we are. We're not a simple gathering of Christians. We're not gathering together for your personal benefit, although hopefully you will get personal benefit. We're not gathering together just to hear a nice message or to have a nice sleep, whichever, you know, occurs at that time. We are here as the ecclesia of God to administer the kingdom of God according to God's will under the leadership of our King, Jesus Christ, in the power of God's Holy Spirit. And even though we're not perfect, even though we'll mess up, uh, we've got the grace of God that is covering us. If we embrace This vision of who we actually are together as the ecclesia, it has some profound implications for us. It can shift our perceptions of what we do and how important it is in God's kingdom. So corporate worship, what I talked to the kids about earlier, corporate worship announces the rulership of Jesus over the kingdom. It's not just glorifying God, but it's declaring to the surrounding area that there's one king, and his name is Jesus. And all creation will bow to his kingship. All creation will bow to his lordship. We proclaim his lordship, the lordship of Jesus, over the ecclesia and the world, and then we invite people to enter into full citizenship by surrendering their lives to Jesus. The different gatherings that we have, and Sunday morning, uh, the small group gatherings, other gatherings, uh, are contexts where citizens, people of the ecclesia, they share their gifts, their talents, their abilities, and their resources with other citizens for our mutual well-being, our mutual upbuilding, and the expansion of God's kingdom and they are places where we exercise our corporate authority. Corporate prayer becomes a major God-directed way to partner with God in extending His loving rulership around the globe, as it's infused with God's power. So when we pray, we're not just saying, Bless me, God, and that's okay to ask God's blessing. It's okay to ask God's healing, but when we pray, We're also praying that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on this earth in places like Myanmar, in places like Gaza, in places like Ukraine and Russia. And we're saying, we're cooperating with God as we pray according to God's will and saying, we will not tolerate this rebellion against the rulership of Jesus Christ. And God uses that, he uses our prayers to make a real difference in the world, to shift things. And you say, well, why does it take so long sometimes? Because we're in a war. We are in a battle. And battles are not won overnight. Spiritual warfare, (laughs) dealing with demons and principalities and powers and, and the likes. Too excited there. Spiritual warfare is close spiritual battle between the ecclesia of God and the stronghold of Satan. Understand, Satan doesn't have cities. He has strongholds because Satan rules by power and deception. And so he takes people prisoner into his strongholds and he controls their lives. Sometimes they don't even realize they're being controlled. But that's how he operates. But we as the ecclesia are doing battle with those strongholds of Satan so that the captives would go free. As Paul tells us, Jesus delivers us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's a city to city kind of transfer. When we talk about deliverance ministry, you know, casting out demons and stuff like that in people's lives. It's about literally delivering people from that stronghold of Satan into the ecclesia of God, making a shift of their citizenship. The good works that we do as an ecclesia in the surrounding area are like missions from one country to another. Uh, they're out there to meet the needs of people but they also persuade people regarding the ecclesia and her Lord and invite people to become citizens as well. So whenever we we feed feed the sick, uh, feed the hungry, or we engage in, in various kinds of ministries in society, we send resources out to help others. It's kind of like an aid mission that one government would do it to another, except we're doing it as one ecclesia into the wilderness places of the world around us individuals who are part of the ecclesia, when they engage in business and they engage in the world, they're doing so on behalf of the ecclesia. So the idea is that when we're engaged in our business, our workplace, wherever that might be, our school, we're going as an ambassador of the ecclesia into an area that does not embrace the Lordship of Jesus to persuade people to embrace the Lordship of Jesus by showing them how to do righteous business, by showing them how to engage in the workplace in a way that honors God, in Jesus Christ. So everything we do, the places we go, we're going as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're ambassadors being sent out, of course, To get into the ecclesia, to really be a citizen, you have to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the only way. That's, That's the requirement for citizenship. You have to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose bodily from the dead to forgive you of your sins and you have to surrender your life to Jesus as the king, as the Lord, as your leader. If you don't, you're not part of the city. Even if you're hanging out, you're not part of the city. You're not a citizen yet. And baptism, baptism then becomes a public ceremony celebrating your entrance into the Ecclesia, as well as a public declaration of your submission to Jesus and to the Ecclesia. The Bible in the Ecclesia becomes our constitution. It guides us in everything that we do. And as the ecclesia, together, we have authority from God. We have the keys of the kingdom to fulfill God's command. And we have God's Holy Spirit living inside of us, corporately, as well as individually, giving us God's power, giving us unity, giving us love, so that we together can fulfill God's mission in the world according to God's will. And that is who we are as church. If you've been around City Temple for any length of time, you may have heard the word citadel. Citadel is the name of God's vision that he gave the church about 30 years ago now, and that we're still living into the fulfillment of. And God intentionally gave the word citadel, which is about a city on a hill. A citadel will have gates. It's an ecclesia. But it's a new, fresh, not new, it's a fresh understanding of what this word actually means and how it applies to us. You know, the Bible says that the ecclesias are the glory of Christ. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That This ecclesia, every ecclesia that's a genuine ecclesia, are the glories of Jesus. Now, we have a mission to extend the loving rulership of God into our surrounding area, expanding this ecclesia. We have a mission to see many ecclesias rise up around the world and in London as missionary outposts of the kingdom of God. Frontier settings advancing God's kingdom. We have a mission to advance against the gates of hell, Satan's stronghold, knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, knowing that the gates of hell cannot prevent us from fulfilling all that God has us to do. And we can only accomplish this mission as the church, the ecclesia of Jesus founded on the rock, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who we are together. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you so much for this ecclesia. I thank you for bringing us together as the ecclesia. I thank you for our corporate citizenship and the authority that you've given us to bind and to loose. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to step in to a full understanding of this reality of who we are in Jesus Christ as the Ecclesia. Lord, I pray that you draw others into this Ecclesia. Lord, I pray that anyone here that's not fully surrendered their lives to Jesus, you'd, you'd lead them to do that right now in this moment so they can be part of your Ecclesia. Lord, we seek the well being of this Ecclesia because we know in this well being, we'll find our well-being. And we honor you and we worship you and we thank you for all you're doing in our midst. Continue to do it for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. We love you and praise you and pray all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord, shall we?